0: Given that HCI exists, why do we need anything special in visualization? And often the answer comes down to data.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Enrico Bertini, and I am a professor at NYU in New York City, where I teach and do research in data visualization. And normally, I host Data Stories together with Moritz Stefaner, who is an independent designer of data visualizations. But Moritz, today is not here, here, is busy in Paris working on Data Cuisine, which is perfect place for anything related to cuisine. And on this podcast, we talk about data visualization, analysis, and more generally, the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with a guest we invite on the show. But before we start, just a quick note. Our podcast is listener supported, so there's no more ads. So if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories. Or if you prefer, you can also send one-time donations. These are very much appreciated. To do that, you can go to paypal.me slash datastories or if you can contribute, that's fine too. No problem at all. But maybe you might want to mention the show on Twitter or any other social media channel or leave a review, a nice review on iTunes. That would be really, really useful. So um, before I start, I just want to say I am in um, in Germany in a beautiful castle. It's called Dachstuhl for a research seminar. Uh, about machine learning and visualization. So there's a bunch of people here. I'm going to spend the whole week here, uh, just talking about the role of machine learning in visualization and the role of visualization in machine learning. So I hope I can report back some information gathered from the, from the seminar. And as I said, Moritz is in Paris dealing with data cuisine and hopefully we're going to hear from him, uh, what he's doing there. Anyways. Today, we have a one of our recurring episodes. We're going to talk again about the Tripoli Viz conference. Uh, I've been there two weeks ago in Vancouver, and uh, we have two guests on the show to talk about it. They're going to help me out, uh, giving a little bit of a recap or highlights of what happened there. And uh, we have some previous guests, actually. Coming back on the show, we have Tamara Mansner, who is a UBC professor. Hi, Tamara. Welcome to the show. Hi
0: there, Enrico. Thanks for having me.
1: And we have Robert Cosara, another great friend of Data Stories, senior research scientist from Tableau Research. Hi, Robert. Hey,
2: Enrico. How are you doing?
1: Welcome on the show. Very good. Very happy to have both of you on the show. That's going to be a lot of fun. So Tamara Robert, as usual we ask our guests to give a brief introduction. So can you briefly give a little bit of background about yourself, what is your, what are your interests, your position, background and so on.
0: Sure. Uh, I am a professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, Uh, and my research area is visualization fairly broadly construed. I'm a bit of a methods geek uh, and also care a lot about graphs and high-dimensional data and field studies and lab studies and... uh, a lot of different things. Uh, I've been doing visualization. In fact, my first viz was 1991. Uh, that was one of my <laughs> first big conferences. It was all very big and scary and intimidating. Um, now it's yes. still big, just less scary. And uh, <laughs> in my last ep- time I was on Data Stories was when I was talking about my book that came out a few years ago in 2014. Yeah. Um, And I've been focused much more on the Uh, non-spatial data side this last 20 or so years, Mm -hmm. uh, although I actually started out doing very 3D stuff with mathematical visualization. Very good. Robert?
2: Yeah, I'm Robert. Uh, I actually, I just remembered when Tamara was talking about her time in the field that, (laughs) I think two years ago at Viz in Phoenix, I loudly proclaimed that this was my 17th viz, I think at that point. Oh And Tamara just rolled her eyes and she was saying, yeah, this is like my 26th or something like that. So
1: <laughs> take that. Put Cosar. me in my place there.
2: <laughs> so I've been <laughs> doing research for a while in this field too. It's actually about 20 years now. And, uh, my research interest. And so I'm now at Tableau, I've been at Tableau for almost eight years now and uh, been doing all kinds of research there around what people like to call storytelling, which isn't my favorite term in the world but i'm interested in how you present data how you communicate with data and how you how you use the the things that you find in analysis and make those usable and interesting and understandable to people so that's been my my kind of it's not really a focus it's kind of broad broad uh, interest for the last several years yes and i also run a little blog called eager and I recently started a, a YouTube channel. <laughs> so it's it's like a podcast yes. but with pictures, like moving pictures. <laughs> uh and uh, it's called Eager TV. So I'm trying to talk about visualization there.
1: Yeah, we already actually mentioned Eager Eyes TV on the show at least once. Oh, I didn't understand. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, and uh, if you if if you're listening to this, you should definitely take a look. It's uh, it's it's beautiful. Uh, you have an amazing studio. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. Um, so I feel like I want to briefly introduce uh I try this for anyone who is listening and is not necessarily familiar with the conference. So this is basically the main academic visualization conference out there. It happens every year, every year in a different place, most of the time in North America, but sometimes also in Europe or other places. And this is the the annual gathering where People that are working, especially in academia, but not solely in academia, uh, present their work gather together and show their their best stuff, basically. And uh, but this is not only about say technical papers or technical contributions. There's a there's a lot going on. It lasts an, a, a whole week, so there are workshops, uh, panels co events we're going to talk about that as well so it's a uh, it's a full week uh Very, very, very full program. And there are also now uh, quite a good number of practitioners. I think the number of practitioners attending this has been increasing a lot over the years. And now there are special sessions for practitioners, which is really, really nice. So the whole thing is is growing and uh, it's really exciting. As you've heard from Tamara and Robert, they go every year, I go every year. So it's one of the most exciting events out there. So let me give you a little bit of an overview of what is going to happen on the show. We're going to briefly talk about events. Then we want to co-located events. Then we want to talk about some technical papers and then a little bit about major trends or great new stuff that we have seen happening this year at Viz. And before we start, just a little note. as i said this is huge so what we're going to cover here is a tiny tiny portion of the whole program so the fact that we're mentioning something here doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best things that happen at this. It's just what we happen to put our lenses on. <laughs> so I really encourage you to, to if you're interested, to look at the program online. Um, this year, there are also lots of videos posted online. So yeah, just a little note. It's not necessarily the, the only interesting stuff that happened there. So let's start with events. Um, I think Tamara wants to start with the first event that she attended uh, about visualization and vision or vis by vision. Tamara? Sure.
0: Um, so, yeah, there's a whole bunch of associated events. Um, and one of the ones I made it to was the VizCrosh Vision. And that's where a bunch of folks from vision science and visualization are trying to build bridges between those two communities. So they're doing stuff where they bring vision scientists into IEEE Viz. And then conversely, they like to bring a bunch of Viz people into vision science events, both uh, some of the big conferences like uh, their annual thing in Florida, as well as some others. Um, And so... As also, as Enrico said, unfortunately, Viz has got so much stuff going on that you can never see everything. Um, so I managed to make it into just two of the talks, uh, but really <laughs> liked them at Viz Cross Vision. And one, ironically enough, was from somebody in Vancouver, Darko uh, Odic, who people have been telling me for years that I should meet and talk to. And I finally managed to do it at Viz, (laughs) if not before, (laughs) even though, in fact, we live not just in the same city, but are on the same campus. And he gave a talk about visual magnitudes, which it turns out he studies precisely a thing we care about deeply, which is when people look at something, how do they judge magnitude? A very, very central topic for Viz people, surely. And so that was super interesting. And before that was also uh, Timothy... Brady um, on working memory. Again, another topic of great interest to visualization people. So one of the things I liked about the workshop was how it sort of brings a lot of the cutting edge in vision science into visualization, and I think that I, like a lot of other people, In viz, are somewhat guilty of knowing what was cutting edge, say, 20 to 30 years ago, uh, in the best case. Sometimes where we think cutting edge, we're like, and then there was the work of Stevens in the early 20th century. And of course, there has been a lot of work since then. Not that I'm dissing on Stevens, who is great and glorious, but in fact, thousands of people have done work in the meantime. So I really like that they're trying to catch up both fields on the cutting edge of each other. Um, I was yeah. very sad to miss Jeremy Wolf's talk as well, who's another one of the big folks uh, in Vision. So a shout out to uh, people like um, Madison Elliott and some of the others who really have worked yeah. hard on trying to build these bridges. I think it's super valuable to have these events that jump back and forth between yes. fields.
1: Yes. And if I'm not mistaken, they've been organizing this event for at least two or three times already, right? So that's that's been growing. and.
0: Right. Yeah. It's,
1: the, it's not the first time they organize it, right?
0: Well, yes and no. Uh, this was the first time oh, they had okay. a, they. this was their first workshop. But like last year oh. they had a panel and the year before that oh, they had okay. a meetup. And so they've been sort of upping the game every time, uh, which is yes. maybe worth mentioning as you talk about Viz, there's a bunch of different modalities for doing things, uh, which range all the way up from like full on symposia that have happened for 10 plus years down to workshops that are submitted every year and then um, that change every year. And then things like panels and things like meetups, which can be super informal and can even be figured out on the fly that very day. So there's a lot of different ways to engage.
1: Very good. And um, Robert, you want to talk about this communication workshop? Yes, yeah, so the Viscom workshop. This
2: was the second time we ran this. This is uh, Ben Watson, myself, uh, Nuska Smith, and Steve Harros. and we we had a full house. So we were in a room that had that was uh, I think supposed to seat about fifty people, and was bursting at the seams with sixty people in there, and. I had to turn some people away, but which is a good problem to have. <laughs> but uh, it was it was an interesting workshop. So the idea is that we want to talk about how you use visualization for communication. Like I was just saying earlier, that's sort of my interest. That's why I'm doing this. And we had a lot of very different talks. I'm not going to try and remember any names here, but we had people from healthcare, for example, talk about how you turn information about health risks and things like what you're supposed to eat and what you're supposed to do into information people can understand because you can't just give the numbers very often because of data literacy, because of just lack of interest. And so there are some interesting things they've been doing also with low general, like low literacy populations that can be a big problem. Uh, People talking about how to reformat. Uh, reports so that the numbers can be can be pulled out and turned into interesting interactive graphs, for example, uh, and, and a whole lot of other stuff. So there was, was really interesting uh, ideas and 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 projects people were talking about, and we we had a little bit of a different format. So we had it's still kind of a workshop in the way that people just present their things, but we have sort of full talks, we have visual case studies, and we have posters. And they all get different amounts of time. But the visual case studies, especially, are interesting because they're not a typical sort of paper, like a, an academic paper. And so we got people that were from sort of out, outside the academic community to show us the kind of work that they're doing. So I think there was a, a Pretty successful workshop in the end, uh, and uh, we got some interesting interesting work to see there. Also, also maybe one more thing to to mention is practitioners. So we did have a good number of practitioners in this in this workshop, both in the audience and speakers. So that was that was nice to see that.
1: Yes, very good. And Tamara, you want to talk about other events? Uh, Yeah,
0: so another one uh, was BioViz. Uh, It used to be that they were actually uh, a co-located symposium along with Viz these days, and they used to go back and forth between ISMB and IEEE Viz. These days, their main presence is at ISMB, where they're a a full-on track, Um, but they want to keep ties. And so they've had this BioViz Challenges workshop, uh, where they really try to get, again, the Viz people and the biology people talking to each other. Um, And so... Again, I didn't make it to the whole thing, sadly Mm -hmm. enough, Uh, but the bit that I did make it to was cool. Um, They literally had it called challenges because they wanted people from this domain, biology, to say, hey, here are our hard problems. Viz people, if you solve these, you would help us. Um, And it's really great to get that kind of framing when it works well. I have unfortunately been to many talks in the past where that did not quite work so well, but this was pretty exemplary where we actually had three people that all did that. There was uh, Martin Carpiforce from AstraZeneca, which is one of these big pharma companies, where they were talking about drug development and the challenges there. And then Aaron Plaisance from BC Cancer on a bunch of personalized oncogenomics stuff. Again, super interesting. And again, wow, someone in my old city that I need to talk to, which was great for me personally. (laughs) And then Sean Hanlon from National Cancer Institute uh, talking about human tumor atlases and also a lot. He definitely gave a roadmap for a bunch of the NIH, that's National Institutes of Health, funded work, both what's happened and what's going to happen, which gave a really nice way to try to onboard people. So I was pretty impressed by that session. It was organized by uh, Anna Crisan, um, who used to work with me and is now at Tableau Research, so has joined Robert's group. And uh, there weren't that many people in the room, which was a bit sad because it was one of those completely off in the distance uh, things Mm. that was actually literally hard to find the room. Uh, But I strongly Mm. encourage people to see the videos once they're posted um, I, it was particularly hard, I think, for a lot of events to be visible this year because it was the first year we didn't have a printed program, uh, which I find yes. co- extremely it tragic. Tough. It was terrible. <laughs> please, guys, please
1: bring that I back. I couldn't write my <laughs> notes. Oh God. It oh was God. terrible. <laughs> yeah. I probably missed a lot of a lot of sessions just because I couldn't mark them. I literally missed a panel
0: because I was like, I heard about it on Twitter after it happened. I'm like, what? (laughs) I would have gone to empirical methods for research, but
1: oh well. Hopefully that's going to change next year. (laughs) Hope so. Yeah. So why, Tamara, why is BioViz, I, I think biology and visualization have a long history of doing things together. Why bio? I think you've been working in this area as well, right? I, yeah. I don't know if you're still working in this area, but why bio is more than other scientific scientific application areas?
0: I have been working it for a while. I was actually one of the founding steering committee members of BioViz. Yeah. So we we got that going several years ago. I think it's because... I always think of what matters in another field when you want to do viz. And I think it's that you have a lot of data. Uh, you have hard, messy problems that can't be trivially solved, or you would just do it that way and not need viz. Um, it helps if they have funding, which biology tends to have a lot of by computer science standards. Mm, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And mm, I think it helps mm, to mm, have mm, this mm. sort of open attitude of we have hard problems, how can we make things better? And so I feel like in particular, biology has a lot of extensive computational pipelines where you already have a computer in a loop and you already have humans doing things. Um, And so the idea that you could actually get your larger process to go faster if you could see what the heck was going on. you know, If you set a threshold to 0.7, is that right? Should it have been 0.67? Should it have been 0.72? How do you know you got it right? Um, They've got all of these papers where they do vast amounts of computation and then realize things like, oh, Batch effects. Wow. What mattered was the physical room where we took the sample, not which intervention happened. So there's this, I think, acknowledgement that they are both surrounded by data and drowning in it and needing to make sure they get things right. Um, I think there's some other areas where it's not quite so life critical. So it's this combination of big stakes and lots of data, maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is a lot of computation going on anyway, right? So yeah. So it's this whole area of bioinformatics. So yeah, yeah. So I
0: think there's clear intervention points.
1: Okay. And what's next?
0: Uh, were we going to talk about uh, VDS? That's uh, Visualization yes. and Data Science. Uh, that's another one of these co-located symposia. Um, and one of the ways they've really made their name in a pretty small number of years is they tend to get these spectacular invited talks Um, (laughs) One of the things about Viz is that there's a huge amount of paper presentations, and typically it's the first author on a paper presenting, which is usually not the senior faculty member who's given a zillion talks, but often someone, (laughs) it's either their first talk or one of their first few talks, which is super important. Um, But it means you don't get as many chances to really hear people who've given a lot, a lot of talks talk in the big picture um, about their work more broadly. And so VDS gets these really great external speakers uh, consistently. And so this year, the one I saw, which was great, was from Bean Kim, who's at Google Brain, talking about a bunch of the interpretability work that they've been doing uh, with machine learning. Super cool talk. Uh, I was quite sad to miss Andrew Gelman, uh, who has (laughs) – I I heard – he is fond of – of being an iconoclast in many ways, up into and including his presentation (laughs) style, which apparently had no slides,
1: which is very rare out of his conference. I think Robert had interesting exchanges in the past with, with, with Gelman, right? That's been a while,
2: yeah, yeah. A few years ago, we had (laughs) uh, I wrote a response to an article, but I've also seen seen him speak like that, where he just walks up and without notes, he just he just talks for an hour, and it's actually impressive, like both in terms of him not having slides, so there's nothing to look at, and in terms of his just having this structure really well laid out. I I think he's always so to me at least, I've always uh, considered him a, a really interesting speaker.
0: Yeah, so I really want to hear that one. And I also miss Jenny Bryan's talk uh, at the end of the day on data wrangling and data rectangling. And she often gives uh, just fantastic talks and has been at the forefront of in the trenches of real people actually using visualization, particularly in the context of R, to get stuff done. Um, So can't wait to see that one on video, too.
1: (laughs) Yes. And of course, as we said, there are many other events happening there, right? We can mention some of them. I think there was what the XAI workshop, right, on explainable AI and visualization. Right. And uh, what else, Tamara? And there
0: was Aviva ML, which was about evaluation of machine learning and visualization. Uh, there was Viz for Digital Humanities, uh, Visual Analytics and Healthcare. Uh, there's yeah, many others, uh, of multi-layer <laughs> graphs, sets, all Very kinds good. of stuff.
1: So um, let's now switch to the technical papers. Right, we're going to cover some of them, and I would like to start with the uh, what what is called the Test of Time Award papers. These are papers that are mentioned for being right highly cited after after many years, right, and being like landmark papers. And there are a couple that I really want to talk about. One is is a super classic from Jarke Van Wyk that is called Cluster Calendar Paper. And Tamara, I would like you to talk about it since I know it's one of your favorites. Right. And then we're going to talk about your paper afterwards.
0: <laughs> uh, well, let me talk about uh, Jack Van Wyk's paper because... Uh, This is one of my, back before there was anything that anyone called a design study, I think of this as one of the first of them, which is to dive into a problem and actually figure out what is the right way to show this data. And he showed time series data in a way where instead of just doing, in some sense, the obvious thing of let's extrude it into 3D, which at the time everyone loved doing because everyone was very excited about the third dimension. (laughs) It must be better if it's a whole extra dimension. And... uh, And it was this great example of how doing the obvious thing, in fact, was not better. And then when he clustered the data and then had these two side-by-side views with a calendar view on one side color-coded according to the cluster on the other side, you could read off all kinds of high-precision information in a way that was completely impossible in this extruded 3D view. And so... (laughs) I, I love this paper. I featured it in my book. I make everyone uh, do a design exercise about it in the first day of my class because it's just such a great example of what if you think beyond the obvious first thing. So it's like a, a hymn yes. to multiple alternatives being considered as part of a design process. Um, I've loved his work for years, yes. and I finally figured out, I think, the underlying reason why. He was trained as an industrial designer. Um, and so I'm like, aha, <laughs> yeah. you learned this stuff, how to yeah. actually design.
1: Yeah. We had Yarke on the show some time ago. I don't remember exactly what episode number it is, but if you're interested in, yeah, take a look at the, at the episodes and Yarke is there and he's as fun and witty as, as usual. <laughs> and I, I just wanted to say, yes, I mean, th- th- I, I totally agree with you that, that that's a fantastic paper. And even after so many years, it's still very useful and valid. And honestly, I don't see I still don't see many papers that use a similar approach. Right. It's like that's the problem. And there are that's the obvious solution. And now let me show you many other ways, or at least one other way, this could be done. I think we, we don't do enough of that, mm, and, I, and it's one of I the disagree. main… I Oh, you yeah, disagree. I actually Great. think people do a lot of that these Great. days, way more
0: these days than in the old days. Okay. In papers? Yeah. They specifically talk okay. about alternatives considered. Um, Like, through the Uh years, like, Michael McGuffin had this paper on, like, genealogical graphs where he goes through this design space of, like, 19 different things you could do and why fractals the wrong answer and and this and that. Um, And I think these days people often talk about alternatives considered very specifically, um, at least Uh in design study style papers. Showing pictures? Yep. Um, Sometimes it's in supplemental (laughs) materials instead of the main paper because everyone's desperate for space. But I think people really do talk a lot about alternatives, which is great.
1: Yeah. Anyway, we agree that it's really important. So the the more, the better. And I was just about to say that is one of the crucial aspects of the way I teach visualization in class. I really stress, I I really spend a lot of time asking my students to, to design the obvious thing and then try many other things. So um, I think it's a crucial, really, really crucial skill in in visualization. And then another test of time award is uh, Tamara's paper uh, from 2009, the the super famous nested model of visualization design and and validation. And since we have Tamara here, I would love to hear the story of this paper. How did it happen?
0: (laughs) It happened because I couldn't figure out the answer and I had to think about it a lot. And the question was, how do you actually integrate validation in with design? Because when I taught my class and when pretty much everyone else taught their class, they would go ranting about design and building things for the whole class. And then there'd be this lecture at the end called evaluation. And it very much felt (laughs) like this sort of afterthought. Um, Afterthought, yeah. And it was like, so could I do this in a way that wasn't just an afterthought? And so I was supposed to be writing my book, but I ended up spending six months on figuring out this way of thinking and wrote up this paper, which at the time felt like, oh man, I can't believe I sidetracked so much, but it turned into like one of the most highly cited papers I've ever had. And it helped me think to the point where every time I give a talk, I like have to have this slide about the nested model at the beginning (laughs) because I'm like, well, you have to go from a domain situation to the abstraction level. And that can be separated out from the technique or the idiom level where you figure out how to do it um, from a visual perception point of view. And then you separate that from the algorithm level, which is how you actually do it from a computational point of view. And so separating out this idea that you abstract from domain-specific language to something independent, and then that that's a different part from a methodological point of view, from figuring out how to either visually encode it or interact with it. um, And then from the algorithm level, it helps because you use different methods. You steal methods from different fields for each one of these. And so for the algorithm level, it's CS methods. And for the uh, technique idiom level, it's typically methods out of either uh, psychology or human-computer interaction or design. And then for that abstraction level, it's this super squishy stuff out of the social sciences with ethnography and anthropology <laughs> interviews, and, and yeah. interviews yeah. and talking to humans yeah. who notoriously yeah. don't remember what they did. Um, yeah. So I really like emphasizing not just, hey, we're interdisciplinary, but here's when to use what method. Um, and so I think that's why this paper caught on, is it really tried to emphasize when to use what method.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because at the same time, in a way, it's it's very abstract and very practical at the same time. I think I think you reached the really sweet spot between these two things there. Right. And uh I think you didn't mention this thing, but you also have a list of th- threats to validity, which is basically like a, a, a set of rule of thumb for what you should be aware of, right? Check that you're not doing this, mis- making this mistake, which I think is really useful, especially for, I see students kind of like my students going through your nested model and making sure that they are not making that specific kind of mistake, which I think is really useful. Cool. I'm glad you use it in class. Um Okay. So I think we can move on to the first set of papers we want to talk about. We want to talk about papers on reflections and provocations. Tamara, I think you want to to start with the first one? Sure.
0: Uh, There was this uh, super interesting paper called Criteria for Rigor in Visualization Design Study by Mariah Meyer and Jason Dykes. And this is one where they took an ultra deep dive into the literature far outside of visualization itself and thinking a lot about things in the social sciences and humanities, uh, as well as from a more engineering background. Um, And they set up a contrast between what they called the positivist tradition um, and uh, what they called the interpretivist tradition. Um, And so uh, many people out of engineering are at least positivists or perhaps post-positivists, if you're feeling generous, um, and uh, have an attitude that there is truth of the capital T, which is observable and objective and can be replicated. And this attitude works really well for certain kinds of work. For example, uh, low-level visual perceptual experiments, it's a very nice match for um, but it can be a really poor match, they argue, uh, and I agree, for some of the work that really involves much more higher-level working with people in the context of real-world activities. Um, I've often seen this called constructivist in the past. They used the word interpretivist. Um, for those who did catch the capstone by Johanna Drucker, she used uh, the word hermeneutic, where they used the word interpretivist, and the word empirical, where, where they used the word positivist. Um and I think what was interesting about this is they took a a somewhat stronger stance. This was in a session called Provocations, which I appreciated. And uh, they took quite a hard line stance of saying that positivism is misaligned with design study uh, approaches. I personally don't feel as strongly about misaligned, but I do think that it is a if you don't come out of the background of having read at all about some of the traditions out of the social sciences and humanities that think about interpreting as a fundamental research method, not just a attempting to do empirical work wrong, but an entirely different intellectual tradition where you do think that the scientist is an observer and a part of that process, not a disinterested third party, I think it gives you a lot more insight into the underlying motivations behind the methods. Um, So even though I personally think you can do interesting design study work without being a full-blown interpretivist, I think that once you start thinking about the underlying methodological issues, that you are ill-equipped to wade into those waters deeply at the methodological discussion level if you don't think about this stuff at a pretty deep level. So I thought it was a great um, bringing of that intellectual tradition, individualization in a way that even people that come out of an empirical background or a positive background could sort of get their feet wet and start diving into that literature. So I really appreciated it.
2: It was also a fantastic talk. So that's one of the talks I think people should really watch the video of and and take as inspiration for for their presentations. It was in, insanely well done, very well delivered, very well structured and was just really awesome design for the slides. It was pretty really well done the whole the whole package was just really exemplary.
1: Yeah. We're going to put the links in the in the show notes. Okay. So w- w- what's next?
2: So the next one uh, be, is Critical Reflections of Visualization Authoring Systems. Uh, this is by Arvind, Satya Narayan, and colleagues. And this is an interesting paper for a number of reasons. So what, what they were doing is it's basically three groups. The people behind three systems that were published, I think, well, last two of them were last year, and then one is a bit older. So one is Lyra. This was uh, Arvin's work from a few years ago. And then um, the uh, the Data Illustrator uh, project from Adobe Research and the Charticulator project from uh, Microsoft Research. Those were both last year, I believe. And what they did was they got together and wrote up their reflections on what worked, what didn't work, how the tools differ, how they do things differently, what what they think are their better approaches and so on. And this is it's interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, it's really hard to get fr- people together from different different organizations to actually work on a project like this together from industry. So in, in academia this is more common, but in industry it's pretty rare. And the second part, and that's actually even the, the harder part I think, is to reflect on existing systems, because it, we tend to like novelty and to we tend to like um Proposing the the next new awesome thing, but going back and saying, "So this thing we did last year, or two years ago, or three years ago, yeah. we now compared that, and here are our honest thoughts." And I think they're actually quite quite honest and quite uh, uh, straightforward in, in what they're what they're talking about. Uh, that's actually fairly rare, and so I really appreciate that paper for that.
0: Yeah, and that this was one where I missed the talk, uh, but then I went and l- read the paper last night, and. The idea that they were trying to not just reflect on these papers themselves, but that they documented their process for doing it and argued for it as a kind of contribution uh, that they want to see more of, uh, I thought was quite interesting. Um, and so it's one where they went – this is a what I call a sort of classic modern paper uh, where they did a lot of work, much of which is documented in supplemental materials. And then in some ways the paper is like the tip of the iceberg – where they give you the high-level bits, and then there's all of this uh, analysis work they did, which they partially uh, then get to you through through the supplemental stuff. Um, and so, as someone who thinks a lot about the actual architectural system building and implications of things like in each of these three systems, here is the word they use. And sometimes they all use the same word and sometimes they use different words and sometimes they use the same word, but they mean a little bit different things by it. And let's actually go into this and talk about the implications of that. Um, I, you know, that level of analysis was super interesting and necessarily You couldn't possibly do this as part of any one of the original papers. It had to be this three-way reflection with the Mm -hmm. authors afterwards and looking back. And I feel like that kind of retrospective analysis would be fantastic for us as a field if we did more of. Um, Especially this really hard interface between – You know, one of the things they pointed out is there's been a lot of work in systems for programmers – and then this question of authoring is this sort of gray middle ground in between mm. a full on programming interface and something that's just absolutely point and click where you're completely boxed in with existing chart types. It's, it's that middle ground.
1: Yeah. And there, so the, the idea is that in the future, people could reuse this kind of methodology to create more critical reflections yeah. in other, other areas. Yeah. Yeah. And that's they, really cool.
0: they definitely argued for that.
1: Yeah. And so we had, more papers in, in this session, right? So there's another one on data changes everything, which I think is also a best paper award or something.
0: Yeah, so that was from uh, Yegolda Walney et al. Um, and that did get the info of his best paper. Um, and uh, what I thought was interesting about this one, again, I'm gonna wear my methods geek hat, is uh, they. it's part of a, a number of papers that basically say so given that HCI exists, why, why do we need anything special in visualization? And yeah. often the answer comes down to data. And so I actually feel like data changes everything, colon, blah, 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 blah. You could actually use that title for a whole bunch of papers, possibly including mm-hmm. the next one about interaction for data visualization by uh, Avantia Damara and Charles Perrin, which I also wanted to talk about, um, which I could, could exactly have that as a, a subtitle as well. Um, And so in the Walney paper, um, they did this big, big project with uh, the National Energy Board, I believe, um, and did a whole lot of visualization where they had a mix of people and they had the Viz researchers and then developers. It's sort of rare in the research community that you get a project with enough funding that you actually have paid developers instead of grad students. And what this surfaced was... In a project where there's like this one grad student doing it all, they're doing the design, they're doing the development, and they've got these super tight loops and iterative design. Great when that's all in one person's head. And then what about when you've got these big teams uh, and a bunch of the places where existing tools fall short of being able to bridge those gaps? And it's not because there's a lack of tools for multi-person design and dev teams. Like that's that's the bread and butter of of many, many companies. So it's not that nobody has thought about this problem before, but I think they surfaced the ways in which, as they say, data changes everything in a pretty interesting and thoughtful way. Uh, so I yeah. liked that paper quite
1: a bit. Yeah. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, they they also mentioned this idea that in industry, over the years, there's been this this figure of the user experience designer that has been growing, but we don't have an equivalent in visualization, right?
0: Yeah, and I think maybe they argue the equivalent could be something like a data characterization designer, yeah, um, exactly. you know, a data designer, and and yeah. that ties into the theme of their paper.
1: Yeah.
0: Then the other one that was actually in the very same—actually, it wasn't in the same session, it was in the provocation section, as opposed to the best paper session—was yeah. this, what is interaction for data visualization uh, by Damara and Perrin? And uh, what was interesting about that one from my point of view, from a, a methods point of view, they went in and did one of these let's dig deep and read a bunch of papers about how people define interaction and how visualization does something different. And they came up with a nuanced and many-flavored definition, which did include data uh, as one of the central parts. Um, And they, from a methods point of view, they did this sort of snowball thing of going, not just relying on themselves to find the set of papers, but querying a bunch of people in the field on what they thought the central papers were and using those uh, as seed papers um, so it was sort of methodologically interesting as well as for the results themselves.
1: Okay, very good. Lots of reflections this year. I think there, there's even more than that, if I remember correctly. But it, it's nice to have these this kind of this kind of papers. Um, so let's move on to, I think we want to talk about a few ones on visual perception and cognition. So I think the first one is Robert's papers. So Robert, maybe you want to talk about it more. More Certainly. pie charts yes, coming exactly. in, in your direction, <laughs> dear listeners.
2: <laughs> so this is there was a, a new track this year at Viz called the Short Papers track, and this is something that's been around at Eurovis for a few years now, but that hasn't existed in this form. At this, there the used to be applications papers and things like that, but short papers are a new thing, and they got—I think—they got a lot of submissions this year, and it was an interesting program for sure. Uh, and I'm—I'm I'm seeing this uh, now. I'm realizing that I'm talking about my own paper here, but anyway, so it was—it was a good set of papers, uh, whether you like mine or not. But so my paper was a short paper on pie charts, and the idea was to figure out how we read pie charts. This has been my mission for the last several years. And using 3D pie charts. And the idea is that when you when you use a 3D pie chart and you use orthographic or or what I call parallel projection, you get a certain type of this distortion of angle and arc um in 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 a slice or on, on a pie, but not area. So the area stays the same as a fraction of the of the pie as you rotate the slice around uh the, the pie chart. And I'm using that in a study to ask people to read those values and then compare what they tell me, which should be, according to these different models, whether it's angle, arc length, or area, should be distorted in certain ways. And then I'm comparing that to my predictions based on these models to figure out which one is the best match, and that would then be the best explanation. And to to kind of keep this short, uh, the the best model was the, the area model. So it seems that people are reading these charts by area. There's still are some complications because it's 3D. So with 3D, you get a few other things that because we look at these things as objects, so maybe we might actually be reading them differently than we think. But at least that was that was one, one part of this. There were also some other good uh, perception papers I think that we wanted to look at. So one of them is Jessica Hallman's paper uh, that is called Why Authors Don't Visualize Uncertainty. And this is part of Jessica's program uh, together with Matt Kay and others. To, to work more on uncertainty in visualization. And so I, I really liked this paper because she looked at, and she asked a lot of people why they don't use, or why they don't express or represent the uncertainty in the data or in the models when they build visualizations either for use in industry or for data journalism, for data um, story pieces. And she got some interesting res- responses, like people saying that the, the people that, that they built them, them for can't deal with the, the, with the uncertainty. Or that if you take all the uncertainty into account, you don't actually have a signal anymore. Like you can't det- talk about anything because it all gets lost in the uncertainty which is an interesting problem because maybe that's the thing that you might not want to actually talk about if you can't even tell given the uncertainty uh, and so on so there are interesting interesting problems or interesting I guess um, factors and reasons why people do this and he has a very nice summary of or not just summary but like overview of all those different reasons and and the very good survey of different people from different backgrounds uh, doing this kind of work and what what their reasons are for for not not representing uncertainty as well uh, as they might. And speaking of uncertainty, I'm just going to keep going here, (laughs) so there's another paper uh, that is called Biased Average Position Estimates in Line and Bar Graphs. Uh, This is by Cindy Zhang and folks from Northwestern. And uh, it's a, a very interesting, very nicely done study where they looked at basically two different chart types, bar charts and line charts. And they asked people to estimate, so they showed them a, a chart, line or bar, with some made up data, and they asked them to estimate the average of that data. And they found that people underestimate line charts, the average of line charts, and overestimate the averages of bar charts. Which And there's, they're relatively small effects, but they're consistent. And so what's interesting about that is that we like to show uh, bars and lines at the same time to show basically dual-axis charts sometimes. And that's actually a very bad idea because you, you get one effect going one way and the other effect going the other way. Uh, and so the actual comparison or the, the perception of this data is actually probably fairly poor. But that was, that was an interesting, uh, paper and it ties into some of her other work trying to figure out, first of all, how, w- what we can do to improve visualizations, but also how it even works—sort of how we perceive certain things and certain chart types—and what we can learn about the underlying mechanisms behind that.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the main features of this year's piece has been a lot of a lot more paper on visual perception and cognition. So I've been really glad to see. I mean, these are just few of the many that. That hmm. have been presented. There were quite a few, yeah. I think it's it's a great trend. I always wanted to see more of that, and I think it's happening. And there are also more people whose background is actually, uh, I don't know, um, cognitive science and, and and visual perception that are coming to this, doing work and presenting to this. I think that's a that's a great trend. And, and another yeah. great trend that is going, oh, Tamara, you want to say something?
0: Oh, just speaking up to say, yeah, like your last yeah. data stories actually was on uh, Lace Padilla's work, who's another one that comes out of that yeah, tradition.
1: Exactly. There are lots of great people doing work in this space right now. And I think uh, he, he, Stephen Franconetti is kind of like leading, leading. The, I think, I don't know how many papers he, he had at Viz this year. So this is, this is really happening. And, uh, but it's not only him. There are, there are a bunch of really, really good people whose background is not necessarily computer science, which I think tends to be the background of people presenting at this. And I think that's a, that's a great trend. It's much more diverse than it used to be. And, um, another great trend that has been going on for a while is, is visualization for machine learning. Again, we we don't really have time to, to mention much, but, uh, I just want to go over a, a couple of papers. So there is this what if tool that has been presented by James Wexler and, and his colleagues from, from Google. I think, um, th- this tool has become already really, really popular. It's mostly a machine learning interpretability tool that I think it's part of the TensorFlow framework and, um, it's really nicely designed and, uh, and, and nothing too fancy, but it does the job. And uh, this whole idea of experimenting with an existing model and treating it as a black box. And I think the names derived from the fact that you can really do this kind of what-if analysis. What happens if I change this variable this way? How does the model respond? So this whole idea of probing a machine learning model, I think it's a really powerful and um, very practical one. Lots of people have the need to inspect models in this way. So I think it's a, it's a great piece of work. And another one that I want to mention is we had a couple of paper on, on, on fairness in machine learning. So how to use visualization as a way to gauge, understand fairness in visualization. So interestingly, I think that there is one paper is called FairVis and another paper that is called FairSight <laughs> in a way they're very similar. And I'm, I'm really happy to see this happening. And this is also a very, very, very interesting line of research. And it's mostly about trying to understand where whether there is bias in a model, detect bias, and also trying to correct it. And um, there is one thing that I really liked in one of the two papers, I believe is Fairvis. It's this idea that there's no single best measure of bias. So what they've been trying to do is to visualize several measures and trying to let the actual expert who is using the system to figure out how to find the right balance between contrasting needs in uh, trying to deal with bias, which I think is really powerful. I think, Tamara, you wanted to conclude with another mentioning a few visualization techniques. We didn't really talk about new visualization techniques, so maybe you want to mention some of them? Sure. I'll just
0: mention a couple that stood out to me. Um, As people have mentioned, there was this new short papers track, and I quite liked the best paper award for that one, which went to the work on periphery plots. Uh, That was from Bryce Morrow and colleagues. Um, and that was this, you know, what's nice about the short papers, it's sort of a, a specific idea where you don't go into as much length as in one of the full papers, but, um, it was, uh, we don't see as much focus plus context things these days, but this, I thought was quite a yeah. nice application of it, um, of saying what happens if you actually want to see not just the zoomed in bit, but a little bit around the edge. And it was just a very nice specific technique. I thought it was well presented, um. And uh, another one that stood out to me was the Orograph paper on interactive network wrangling from Alex Bigelow et al. Um, And most of the data wrangling papers that people have done so far have been about tabular data. So it was just very nice to see one that focused on this analogous but different problem when you're trying to wrangle networks. Um, There was, of course, a whole bunch of other technique-flavored papers as well. My own group had one on aggregated dendrograms. So... In general, there was probably another hundred papers that we could have talked about (laughs) that we didn't, (laughs) because I know we're getting low on time. So there was lots of papers and everybody should go read them all. (laughs) So go to the TVCG site. You could download the preprints today.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's actually painful having to decide what to talk about because there are so many more great, great papers. But anyway, so I think we have to close it here in terms of what talking about specific papers. I would just like to conclude talking about major trends and great new stuff that happened at Viz, right? So what has been new and remarkable at Viz this year? Robert, maybe you want to start?
2: Sure. Yeah. So since I've already mentioned the short papers, I guess that's certainly one of my Favorites, I guess. I, I liked the the efficiency when you go to a paper session yes. and you see a lot of those talks, and yes. uh, I think a lot of them are actually quite good papers, just in general, not even just because they were short papers. So that was that was really good. That's also been uh, uh, something I saw at Eurovis that that those short papers are actually quite good. Um, so that, that that was one of my my yeah. main new things, I think. Yeah, and um,
1: I I have to say that. I was really skeptical about short papers initially and uh, then I started attending the the sessions I was like wow this is so so nice <laughs> right it's like uh, it's, it's good contributions it's really interesting it's not shallow at all and it's pleasurable attending these shorter shorter sessions it's really nice i completely changed my mind 180 degrees <laughs>
0: Um, another interesting trend was the number of preprints that went out on archive. Yes. Um, there's definitely been a sea change in terms of open access sweeping over the field in the last several years, um, more with materials on OSF. There continues to be a whole lot of preprints being shared on individual paper sites, uh, or sorry, individual, uh, personal pages or lab websites, personal pages, but, yeah. but the sheer number of preprints on archive. Um, one of the things I'm personally hoping we can make some forward progress on is getting a viz category in archive. Um, yes. And I've been talking with many people in part of the efforts in surveying the community. And I think we, we are clearly at a tipping point where it makes sense. And I think then it could become the norm the same way it is in machine learning, uh, that as a matter of course, you do that. And I think it was important that the open access chairs worked with TVCG and Viz to make sure that there could be a statement saying, yes, you can have preprints and it will not mess up the reviewing process, uh, which is another key thing. It's it's crucial for that, that you don't have mandatory double-blind reviewing, because especially if you're doing serious deployment of code on GitHub or sharing a preprint, then that – I think it's more crucial for open science – uh, and open access to have that happen than to have double-blind reviewing. So I'm glad that Viz
1: has that optional, not mandatory. Yeah, that's a fantastic development. And also pre-registration.
2: So so in addition to, to the the availability of the papers, there's also more, more materials, I think, that people share. So I'm I, 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 I certain I saw a lot more like QR codes and, and URLs at the end of talks that where people had materials like their study materials or their, their software so that was it's much easier to build on these things when you can when you can use the materials that are already out there.
0: The new trend this year was a little QR code thing on the actual final slide. People have been for years including uh paper landing pages, but the QR code
1: was like, oh, well that's just next level. Um.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's a lot more efficient, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And a lot of pre-registrations compared to before, which was basically zero, right? Robert, I know you did that. You, you pre-registered your study. Yes. And so there were, there were three this year. Yeah. Yeah. Nicholas Elmquist did. Uh, Yeah. I think there were more probably, I saw more probably. Yeah. Anyway, it's a trend, right? It's it's happening, which I think it's, it's really good. Certainly
2: better than nothing. So that's for sure. (laughs)
1: It is better than nothing. Right? Yes. And I think another. Another major change this year was that the the three traditional conferences that were within Viz, uh, there were InfoViz, Vast, and SciViz, now have been basically completely merged in the sessions. So we only had sessions with session names and no mentioning as far as I can tell of these three conferences. Right, Tamara?
0: Yeah, that was a first step that they took this year as part of the larger restructuring effort that I've been heavily involved in. Um, so I was super excited that after, um, depending on how you count it, a year of work or three years of work, or at some level, 15 years of work or more, we are now <laughs> in a place where uh, we're going to actually tear down these walls that have been siloed between what has been historically called information visualization and visual analytics and scientific visualization – Um, and actually have a unified VIZ starting in not 2020 because these things take a lot of time to put into uh, uh, practice on on the governance front. But starting in VIZ 2021, um, there has been a vote that we will have something integrated across all of them. There will be areas uh, where there's going to be area papers chairs for the individual areas, Uh, into six areas but we're not just building new walls with the bricks that we tore down the old ones with but there's going to be a whole process where the areas shift and change dynamically over time with sort of a mix of dynamism and also stability so i'm super excited that there's a both a new governance structure um and a new way of submitting content that i think will be a lot more dynamic so um that was what the revised committee did and uh I am both happy to have been a part of that process for the last three years and happy to be signing off and handing it off to others <laughs> as part of term limits and rotations, which is sure. something I believe in strongly. And I'm excited yeah. from a governance point of view that there's going to be direct elections to uh, the governance, uh, steering and executive committees for the first time. So there will be elections at upcoming visits.
1: That's great. I, I think it's a great development. I always felt that these these walls didn't make much sense. And even as a as an old timer, just flipping through the program without having to figure out which which conference this is and just saying, what am I interested in? I think it's been a great experience. And I have a hunch that for a newcomer, that would be even better, right? Not having to figure out what these three conferences are and just focus on what am I interested in. I think it's a much, much better experience.
0: Yeah, because I think there's so much interesting work that happens on the margins. And, you know, machine learning is getting to be, you know, it's not just visual analytics that has machine learning. It's all over the place. The best paper from SciViz involved machine learning. Exactly. Um, People are using the methods historically associated with one to do super great and interesting work in the other. And so I think we've now actually come to a place where that cross-pollination has hit the intellectual uh, tipping point where it really is, depending on whether you call it visualization or visual analytics, this larger set of things that have historically had these different names really is, I think, happening in a much more unified way, even while it keeps the vibrancy of these different traditions. So the sort of unification yet diversity, I think, is the the sweet spot.
1: Yeah, I like the slogan. <laughs> uh, what else? Should we mention anything else before we conclude?
0: Um, I was super excited that the videos were posted promptly uh, for some even that very day. There's already a bunch of the stuff we talked about. We're going to have links to the talk videos in the show notes that you can watch the moment that you are hearing this podcast and that hopefully the rest (laughs) will get posted within a month or six weeks uh, is definitely a huge step forward compared to uh, the time lag it's been in the past.
1: Yes, Perfect. So I just want to encourage our listeners if if you're not familiar with with the conference at all go to the website is ieeevs.org and uh, familiarize with the conference and come next year <laughs> it's a, it's a very welcoming event and people seem to have a lot of fun we certainly have a lot of fun every time we go and I've heard actually really good feedback from newcomers this year On Twitter, we had multiple people saying it's been the first time for me. It's very welcoming, lots of fun. So it's been, it's, I, I, I've been very happy to hear this kind of feedback. I think that's, that's what we want to see.
0: (laughs) One thing that might be worth mentioning that we didn't even have time to get to is. Even for those that are not academics but practitioners, there's a whole track that the VIP, uh, yes. Viz in Practice folks have put together, both specific events where they bring practitioners in to talk, uh, which included people from the Data Visualization Society and a bunch of industrial places, uh, both small companies like Clear uh, that are local to Vancouver and, of course, big companies like um, Microsoft and and so on. Um, and so – Vis and practice is definitely a way to try to get a lot more practitioners involved at the forefront of vis. So next year in Utah, hope to see a mix of academics and practitioners.
1: Yeah. Salt Lake City. (laughs) And the year after that, New Orleans. (laughs) So and of course, we're going to put all the links, the links about all the things we mentioned in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you're desperate trying to take notes, don't worry, just go on the blog post and you'll find everything. So thanks so, so much, Tamara and Robert, for coming on the show again and helping me out, go through all these things. And um, it's been great to talk to you again. It's been my pleasure. Of course. Thanks so much for having me back. And I'm looking forward to having you on the show again to talk about some of your work. Cool. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
2: Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is crowdfunded, and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash datastories, where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at
1: paypal.me
2: slash datastories.
1: Or, as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes reading us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our own page at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page.
2: And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode.
1: That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just
1: send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now, see you next time, and thanks for listening to Data Stories.